Greetings, everybody, for another Running Into the Fog here with the Joe Bros, Eric and Derek Johnson. Hey, Derek, how are you doing today? Doing really good today. How are you doing, Eric? I couldn't be better. Uh, slick jean jacket, by the way, if I do say so myself. Yeah, I got my jean jacket. I'm rocking the jean jacket and my First Light Truth Magnifier shirt on. I see a pretty cool shirt under your jean jacket, too. Yeah, well, you know, if I told you where I got this shirt, you'd have to spend the rest of your life in Guantanamo Bay, so we won't go into that. Um, but our guest today, our provocateur today is Mr. Mike Littman, Dr. Mike Littman, excuse me. Uh, Mike, how are you doing today, brother? I'm doing pretty well. Fantastic. And we are streaming all over social today. Uh, and for those of you who are joining us on social media today, I think, Mike, where are you streaming to again? I'm streaming on YouTube, Twitch, and Facebook. Fantastic. We're going to YouTube, Facebook, LinkedIn, and Twitter. Uh, and for those of you joining via social today, I'm going to spotlight this QR code for you all. Um, scan this, hang on to it, and redeem it. Uh, if you don't know what a QR code for a PO app is yet, you're going to learn a little bit about that today. Uh, this is an experiment we're starting uh, really as proof of attendance protocol uh, tokens for your NFT collection. Uh, this is a specific NFT for the shows that Aurora is doing. This one is our first half NFT for social streaming called Unthinkable. So the first half of the show is kind of a family show, uh, no cussing, as we say. Uh, and then in the second half, we cut all you social streamers free and uh, you got to join the bridge to actually be part of the meeting. And you'll find that on openrecon.com. I'll put a link in the, the chat here in just one second, but scan that QR code. This might be your last chance if you don't do it right now. Uh, for those of you on the bridge already, thank you for coming in and letting us know who you are. Um, I'm going to be spotlighting the rest of our panel here. Derek, uh, my co-host, I'm going to be adding Mike in and then me. Uh, we need you all in the audience today to put in some remarks and some questions because uh, the format for Unthinkable is we get to spend half an hour talking with Mike and get Mike exposed and, and showing you who he is and, and what he's about and what we know about him and hopefully learning a few things about Mike ourselves. In the second half, we turn Mike over to you all. Uh, and there'll be three contributors and only three uh, contributors based upon the remarks that you all put into chat today. So if you put a good remark in there that you want to uh, talk to Mike about, that's how you get selected uh, for unspeakable. Uh, and then you got to join the bridge, obviously. So you social streamers will be saying bye-bye or das bedanya uh, to you all here shortly. But uh, Mike, uh, you and I first met about two and a half years ago when our friend Jeff Meyer and his wife Amy were doing a workshop at the new plaster building at Concordia University, Wisconsin in Mequon. And you were kind enough to ask if we were lost and needed help uh, figuring out where we were going. And we got to be fast friends after that. And uh, such good friends that uh, we created quite a rockin' internship program uh, with Concordia and have since actually uh, hired now formally three uh, of your recent graduates, some of your best and brightest to the Aurora team. So Mike, with that intro, thank you for your partnership, your friendship and your brotherhood uh, here in all of this. And, uh, and we're so excited to be continuing to recruit uh, out of Concordia going forward and pushing the envelope with you, my man. Yeah, absolutely. It's been a ride. So tell us about yourself. Uh, you're a software entrepreneur. Uh, a, you've got a whole bunch of story that goes along with that. You're obviously uh, an educator, professor, and chairman of the computer science uh, department at Concordia. What else is going on with Mike Littman that maybe we don't know about? 
Well, let's see. So um, I guess uh, I'll try to just hit the highlight reel. Uh, I used to play Division One tennis uh, and broke my back. So um, I'm kind of an athlete trapped in a nerd's body. Um, put on a couple of pounds after I broke my back as well. Uh, I'm an avid golfer. Uh, my PhD is in computer science. Uh, my specific background is uh, software engineering, language theory. So like creating writing programming languages. Wow. Uh, I uh, started and sold five software companies. Uh, four were in the real estate field. One was in mobile application uh, software development. Uh, I do consulting on cryptocurrency and uh, VR and, you know, really anything technology, but those are my two bread and butter things. Uh, maybe something you didn't know about me is I also have a consulting business around travel hacking. Um, uh, so, um, you know, uh, teaching people, you know, ethical ways of uh, um, getting cool perks, traveling and, and things like that using technology. Uh, former competitive eater uh, when I was working on my PhD. Um, let's see. So I hit the highlights. I think that might hit the highlights. Right now, I'm, now I'm just a boring professor. <laughs> <laughs> well, I don't think you're very boring. And we've got a number of your students on actually in the audience here today. So hopefully some of those students have guts enough to come on as a contributor in the second half. Uh, once again, uh, submit your remarks in chat and we'll select you as a contributor, uh, invite you in for the second half uh, as we get going. Derek, uh, you've met Mike before and had a, had a chance to talk with Mike a little bit. Do you have anything you'd like to uh, sort of take Mike off uh, here as we run into the fog together? I want to hear more about the competitive eating, but before we go there, this is episode 36 of Running Into the Fog, and I just want to make sure that we document that because it's fun to watch that number go up slowly but surely, and it's uh, been a great joy to, to work on this uh, podcast series with you, Eric. Back to the competitive eating thing, Mike. You know, tell us more about that. Is that like uh, every summer we see the, the guy ingest X dozen hot dogs or was this something different? And I guess an extension of that yeah. is have, have you ever used it in a way that has helped your other ventures in some way or another? Oh, sure. Absolutely. So, um, yeah, so it's actually uh, think about like Major League Baseball and stuff. There's this, the International Federation of Competitive Eating. Um, uh, it is, that is the uh, organization that puts on the Nathan's hot dog thing every uh, July 4th, uh, within competitive eating, there's two tracks, there's speed eaters and distance eaters. The speed eaters are what you see on Nathan's hot dog thing. And if you actually notice most of those guys, at least the ones that do well are, uh, skinny, um, because, well, speed eating is how much you can consume in, uh, eight, 10 or 12 minutes. Um, so a lot of that is kind of just the, 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 the physicality of getting a bunch of food into your body quickly. Whereas the distance eaters, those are all fat guys who just know their way around the dinner table. And, um, uh, so it's how much you can consume in an hour, but nobody eats for an hour. You usually eat for, I don't know, 35 to 45 minutes, something in, uh, uh, in that ballpark. Um, you know, and, and nobody really knows how much they can eat compared to other folks, uh, um, you know, I was always the big eater out of my, out of my group of friends, you know, every single time you go to a place that had some sort of eating challenge, you know, a, a steak, a burrito, you know, whatever it is, you know, you just, I would just sit down and do it. And I always ordered dessert afterwards and it was pretty passive for me. And, and I started entering, 
entering things and been on TV a bunch of times. And uh, yeah, and I've, and I've done it um, uh, for several charities, like autism charities and things like that. And then my TV name for that was Awesome Fat. And I actually attached that to my mobile application software development company. So I had a, um, which I sold in December, 2014. Um, I retained the uh, LLC, but the, the software company itself left, but the company's name was Awesome Fat. And if you're up in the Milwaukee, Mequon uh, area and you see me driving around, I drive around in a red Tesla that has Awesome Fat logos all over it. And um, yeah, so it's, I guess it's kind of become like this almost like a superhero personality or something like that. You know, <laughs> yeah, that I cool. guess I play out my daily life. I'm, I'm old enough to remember that movie. I don't know if anybody else on the line today remembers the famous John Candy uh, the great outdoors. outdoors movie with the old 96ers. Uh, you know, that's what yeah. I'm envisioning as a distance eater, maybe sitting down 35, 45 minutes later, you've ingested this old 96er, but maybe that would be sort of a, a smaller challenge yeah that would not, yeah yeah the you know the the one that a lot of people in the area have seen like kind of if, if i were to say like one of the funnest uh things i did i used to do cameos on like travel channel and uh man versus food and stuff so there was an episode of big beef paradise on travel channel where uh, they featured ward's house of prime in downtown milwaukee uh, and they brought me in as a you know this underdog cameo person and it's pretty fun to watch. I have some good one-liners in that. But uh, we did 106, we, as a, there were three of us doing 160 ounces of prime rib. Um, wow. And, uh, you know, the punchline is, you know, some other guy who was a current competitive eater at the time, he beat me by four bites. But then I ordered more from the kitchen. Because <laughs> um, <laughs> the hour was not up. So it, <laughs> it, it made for some pretty decent TV, I guess. That's drama, man. I like it. I'd watch that for sure. <laughs> Super cool. The other question I have for you as we get started here today is, you know, you're an educator. You're, you're obviously, you talk about being a consultant, but you're also a big portion of your life is dedicated to bringing new software developers up through the ranks. We've benefited from that and have some amazing talent on our team as a result. But my question for you is, how do you mode switch between the two? You know, you're a consultant on the one hand, and then you're an educator mentor who is really seeking to, to place your students, obviously, with, with good companies of all sizes. And you, know, you have to, I would imagine, use different uh, muscle twitch and, and fibers and different things like that of your being to, to get yourself from one place to the next. I don't know if you can comment on that from yeah, so I mean, I'd actually say it's all the part of the same thing. It, I, I started teaching college in 2000. Uh, so I've been teaching for 22 years. So I was running companies in the middle there. And um, so, you know, I think it part of part of it is kind of this entrepreneurial spirit where what I would do is when I was teaching, I mostly taught software development classes is I would hire my students as interns for my companies. And I effectively had a three or four year interview process with these students where I could cherry pick the good ones after that and, uh, you know, write letters of recommendation for the, uh, the other ones. So it really ended up becoming almost like a, you know, a, a manufacturing type of type of situation where I was not only was I educating people, I was specifically educating my own employees. Um, you know, and, and so I, I guess, 
you know, because of that, I think I already had a passion for teaching and, and I think computer programming is kind of difficult to teach. And I guess I'd like to think I have a fairly unique way of, of teaching it that people tend to benefit from, I, I guess. But maybe I was even more motivated to ramp the, the very best, brightest students up more quickly because I had a vested interest in them becoming uh, productivity units uh, earlier on. Um, so I guess I never really look at it as a, I never, it never really feels like it's a mode switch. I feel like I'm, you know, a, a hyper analytical person all the time. So, um, you know, I, I guess I just, that's the way I think a hundred percent of the time. Tell us more about that way you teach programming. That's unique. I want to hear more about that. Yeah. So, you know, one thing you hear from, from folks when you run into them and, you know, they find out you're a software developer or something like, Oh, they, they say, Oh, what language? And I like to, I teach computer computer programming from the perspective that the language does not matter. Computer programming is the skill set. Um, you can then take that language, uh, take that skill set, go and learn any other programming language in like a weekend. Because um, the way human beings, I, I kind of uh, abstract it down to the how do human beings solve problems? We remember stuff, we ask a lot of questions, and we do repetition. And then I'll say 100% of programming languages, literally 100% of them, will have facilities for those three things. So if you can answer that question with a language that was just introduced to you this morning, is how do I remember things? How do I ask a question? And how do I do stuff repeatedly or give, so effectively it's, how do I remember things? Those are variables in most programming languages. How do I ask questions? Usually that's conditionals, if statements. Uh, how do I do things repetitions? That's loops, functions, procedures, um, things like that. So if you could sit down with a brand new programming language and learn how to do those three things, just what's the weird syntax for this particular language to do those three things, you could already solve a huge subset of the problems that you might be able to be capable of solving in that language in, in half a day, you know, and wow. then by using the language, you just bring in, you know, every programming language kind of has its little, its little idiosyncrasies and some kind of lend themselves to, to solving certain kinds of problems. So you start bumping into some of the built-in stuff in that language that maybe, you know, makes it the reason to pick that language for a certain type of thing. But to learn another programming language really is, is not an overly difficult thing. And one thing I like to connect it to with um, some of my students who maybe, maybe they don't have any background in computer programming, but they have a background and maybe they speak a second language. Um, you know, and the common second language they might have learned and, you know, you have international students and it's their, their uh, language from their homeland. But if it's, uh, you know, students who maybe took, took a language in uh, high school, like Spanish or French or something like that, you know, I would say something like when you're speaking to your Spanish speaking friends, you know, your mindset does not change from when you're speaking to your English speaking friends. Mm -hmm. Different words are coming out of your mouth, but your mindset doesn't change. And why is that? Because you're speaking to a human being. And we have a whole lifetime of experience of talking to people. Same thing's true with programming languages. Even if, even though we're using different syntax, we're you know typing out a couple of different things to say basically the same stuff in different programming languages. Ultimately, we're talking to a computer. That's the skill set. How do we leverage our human problem solving and really dumb it down? Because really, the problem is, is a lot of folks uh, perceive computer programming as being hard. I would actually go the other direction. I would say that 
human beings are such good problem solvers that we have trouble articulating how we solve problems. You know, sure. um, even something like just, you know, walking down the street or something like that, you know, you, you're you in a mall or I see them in the hallways at the school, you know, the, the students are sitting there staring at their phone, texting while they're bobbing and weaving around people. It's not even worth their time to pay attention to how they're walking and think about all the little muscle twitches, all these things that are happening that we could never fully articulate how we accomplish some of these tasks. Yet it's so mindless for us that we can text while we're doing it, you right. know. So human beings are just amazing problem solvers. And the problem for us is when we go and have to tell a computer what to do, we have to break the steps down into little tiny granular steps. That's what's challenging for us to do because we are too good at solving problems otherwise, where we don't have to think about all those 50 steps in between. So that breaking down process is literally the definition of analysis. Analysis is the breakdown of a problem into its constituent subproblems, and synthesis is then the pulling together of those things into a bigger whole. And so it strikes me that you know, analysts in our world, the intelligence analyst world, have a heck of a lot in common with software engineers from the analytical standpoint, breaking things apart into smaller pieces that are a little more bite-sized and you know, chewable, so to speak, not to extend the competitive eating metaphor too far. Yeah, I think I, that's absolutely true. I mean, and, and really that just comes down to human beings are great problem solvers across the board. And we apply that problem solving ability to all sorts of different vocations. Um, you know, computer scientists are having to uh, tell a computer what to do. Analysts, let's, let's, let's even just talk about it in terms of computer analysts. They are one layer up and they have to bridge the gap between the computer nerds and the human beings. You know, the business people, how do they interpret this data and explain it to somebody else as, look, this is all complicated stuff. This is what we've done to it. This is what we've learned from it. And this is how you can now go and use that. Here's your marching orders, uh, something like that. But the problem solving process for that is still the same because the way people solve problems is the way people solve problems, period. Um, we just have to think about who our audience is. Who are we trying to explain the solution to? Perfect. And I remember being a I think I was a, either a freshman or sophomore at UW-Eau Claire way back in the day. This would have been the 93, 94 timeframe. And at that time, you know, we, we didn't have email, you know, like uh, you had to, I forget, I think it was a dial up through Netscape, if I have that correct, but I, I'm a self-described tech whiteite. And, you know, so when you think about where we've come in the last 25 years, uh, in way of technology for communication and all that goes into that. Chad's correcting me. Thank you, Chad, uh, in the chat, Eudora, uh, up at UWC. Um, yeah, I see this thing over your head, you know, Mike, VR, virtual reality, right? And I'm, I'm saying to myself, and I've got, this is a two-part question, one of which I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to ask you now, and the, the next part I'm going to save for the, the unspeakable part of our time together. Um, you know, what do you think college students are going to be doing in another 20 years that they aren't doing today made possible through things like VR, other augmented or mixed reality sorts of, of environments? Can you comment on that from the standpoint of uh, your student of today in comparison to 
or anticipation of your student of two decades from now? Yeah, so I mean, I think today we have a, a kind of an interesting uh, disconnect. Um, when I started teaching 22 years ago, um, you know, the students were coming in with, uh, you know, school was their full-time job. You know, I wouldn't hear from these students that, oh, I couldn't do homework. I had a, you know, I, I had a double shift this weekend or something like that. You know, they, some of them had part-time jobs and things like that. But now students are coming to school. They have credit card debt. They have car payments. You know, kind of real life, I think, is starting a lot sooner uh, today. So now from an academics perspective, I can say that, oh, well, the, the best way to learn is to be physically present in the classroom and, you know, your full-time job for your four years in college is to be a, a student. Your, you know, your, your full-time work is being, is your homework. That's what you should be doing. Um, Cause that's how you're becoming a, an expert at something or whatever. Now I can say that that's the ideal, but that's not necessarily compatible with today's customer, today's student. Um, our people today are much more worldly. They know a lot more about what's going on and they get involved in a lot more things, whether it's in the digital world or the physical world. So I think we're seeing, and this was kind of, a, I think, exasperated with, uh, with COVID is, um, you know, that we more and more people appreciate the convenience of going online. Uh, they appreciate, uh, uh, even if it's not as, uh, um, as good of a learning environment. You know, it's pretty, you can always tell at the end of a class when I do a class that happens to be on Zoom, um, you can see, you know, you get those four or five students that are still sitting there at the end of class after class has been dismissed. You're pretty sure that they're the ones who logged on and walked away or something like that, you know? <laughs> or every now and then you'll hear somebody, you know, uh, their mic will get unmuted or something. You're hear the, you hear the Netflix going on in the background, you know, that kind of stuff. You know, so we have, as human beings, we have this perception that we want one thing, even if it's not what's necessarily best for us, but we tend to be, I guess, critters of convenience. Um, and and uh, so with that in mind, I think that technology is going to be something that we're going to be leveraging more and more and more moving forward, not just in education, but also in industry. I mean, you're already seeing companies uh, reduce their real estate footprint since you know when they when they people everybody went remote during COVID, um, a lot of companies said, "Hey, maybe you don't have to come back." You know this worked out okay. And again, you know it takes a certain kind of employee for that, somebody who's going to, you know, be you know ethical and, and things like that, rather than just you know phone in their hours. But you know the point is is that you're going to start seeing that become more and more the norm. So now we have to look at how can technology facilitate some of that oversight that we do lose, you know, when, when somebody is on uh, zoom, like right now, you know, we don't know who's sitting there, you know, typing out emails or whatever, half the people have their, their cameras off and, uh, and, and that kind of stuff, you know, th that's just the common, you know, zoom etiquette, let's say, where if you do like a VR meeting and, um, you know, we do these all the time, you know, everybody has to put this headset on. So you physically have to wear a headset and you're in your avatar is in this room and you can tell who you're looking at who you're, you know when somebody's talking if you're just staring into the into oblivion then people kind of know that you probably put your headset on a mannequin or something <laughs> you know or uh when when your headset you know when your when your head goes down on the on the screen that probably means you took the headset off and you know you're, you ran off into the other room or something but it adds a sense of presence because you actually make eye contact with the person who's talking and and 
it's much, much, much more like actually being there. And people I feel like are a lot more accountable for their attention, even though they're still completely remote. So you're going to start seeing that become um, much more of the, the norm rather than people spending a lot of money or time uh, traveling. You know, this is this comes down to how do we, you know, burn fossil fuels and all sorts of stuff like that. You know, if you have to take one less airplane trip per year, you're doing, you know, some reasonable good for the environment, let's say. You know, then for that, you after that, you have a thousand more arguments along those similar lines with time and money and and all sorts of stuff using technology, similar to travel. You know, um, uh, there's already people who are uh, live streaming, uh, like tours of Rome, for example, where you can, you know, put on a headset and you're effectively, you know, riding on this person's head as they're walking through Rome. Um, and you can talk to them and, you know, live and say, hey, you know, go over there to the left and let's, let's look at that farmer's market or something like that. Um, and you can look all around as if you're there. Um, I think we're going to probably see as we now, now you start to see the merger between, you know, let's say, keep it with VR uh, and maybe robotics. So what keeps us from having effectively a, you know, a station of robots that can walk around and all this stuff, you know, over in, you know, let's just keep using Rome as our example. And I pop my headset on here in uh, um, Mequon, Wisconsin, and you know, I take over my robot in Rome and I'm just wandering around town as if I'm there, you know, and as we get more and more technology where we can kind of, you know, fake the smells and all that stuff. And we have, you know, uh, you know, I don't know if you've ever been to one of those 4D movie theaters where they have like the wind blowing and the sheets, the, the seats shake and, and all this stuff. We're going to start augmenting our overall experience with things like that. Well, now you start saying, well, do people ever need to leave the house? Um, yeah. You know, kind of interesting, and that I'm a big fan of that Ready Player uh, uh, One book. the The movie was good too, but the book the book was excellent. You know, and it kind of paints that picture of what happens if everybody is living in VR. The good, the bad, and the ugly. There's a lot of positives to it, but there's some there's some things that we do need to think about. Is what does it mean to be human? What does it mean to interact with other people physically? Um, stuff like that. So I don't know. It could be could be good and bad, I suppose. Right on. Uh, by the way, just a quick interjection. You'll see on your screen that QR code to scan for the PO app. Please go ahead and get that um, and, uh, and claim it, or at least reserve it. If you don't have a crypto wallet yet, you can reserve it with your email address. Uh, by the way, we have our first contributor has been named. Suki Fuller will be joining us as a contributor in about two and a half minutes when we say goodbye to the, the social anonymous streamers. Uh, convert over at openrecon.com slash events slash R-I-T-F dash live stream. I'm going to put that into the chat here in a second. Uh, but we've got about two minutes. Uh, Derek, one last question for Mike regarding sort of what he looks for in terms of uh, an intern recommendation. And, and the reason I asked that is I asked you a few weeks ago uh, to recommend some interns for our summer program, which is called uh, the Dark Acolyte program, by the way. We've got a new program that started up uh, called the Dark uh, architects and uh, the first few of those dark architects are co being called the dark acolytes. So welcome everybody uh, from that program who's uh, who's joining the bridge today. Feel free to join as a contributor in the second half if you have something 
uh, interesting to talk to Professor Littman about. Uh, and even if it's just to ask for a better grade, uh, that's, uh, that's fair game, I, I would say. But tell us in this next couple of minutes before we, uh, we cut the unthinkable folks free, uh, what do you look for when you make a recommendation like that? What kind of student uh, are, you, are you cherry picking to send our way? Okay, well, so that's situational. You know, I have some personal relationships with some companies, um, you know, where, you know, at the end of the day, I have a significant amount of influence over who gets hired. And with that in mind, there's a reputation there to, ma to maintain to make sure I'm sending them people that are going to deliver. So when I'm working with you guys or places like Acuity, you know, we have three or four other uh, companies that, you know, we've historically been close with and and fed them people and and they're asking me for a recommendation i'm going to go and look at who are my best students now best students come in a lot of different flavors so you have people who maybe are very talented that maybe need some real world experience to maybe smooth out the rough edges so sometimes that's it sometimes you have really dedicated students that you know have a lot of potential and if they're given um uh, and, and, you know, if they're, if they're given an opportunity to do something, you just know that they're going to, they're going to bloom. They're going to be something special and you just see that potential in them right from the get go. You know, so that's kind of like the example with the, the, the three guys I sent you recently is, you know, they're, these are saw, you know, uh, second semester computer programming students. So, you know, they don't know what they don't know yet, but all three of them are people that have just tons of potential and I'm 100% positive that with real life experience, they're going to turn into effectively professional developers, you know, during their sophomore year of college, you know, so I look for those kind of things. And, and maybe that's part of, you know, talent identification, maybe it's a talent I have or something, or maybe just from 22 years of working with student programmers, um, you know, I uh, uh, have gotten used to uh, identifying, you know, who's, who, who's good and who sucks, you know, something like that. But now also working with some other, you know, companies, I might pick a student who struggles more because that is a good fit for what that company needs. Maybe they don't need somebody who's going to be as skilled, but they really have a heart for bringing people in and, and kind of investing their time and maybe money into, you know, giving somebody some experience they're not going to get in the classroom. Um, so I think everybody is employable uh, when they're in school, but you kind of have to direct them to the place where, you know, maybe maybe God wants to see them and where they're going to shine the most. And that's not always at, you know, the top tier places. Well said, Mike. And just for those of you watching on social, uh, go ahead and follow Mike on uh, Awesome Fat on Twitch, Mike Lippman on Facebook, Mike Lippman on YouTube. Uh, we're streaming in a few places and join us on the bridge if you like openrecon.com slash events slash ritf dash live stream we need to shorten that url i think derek uh, register there and then you can join the, the regular bridge otherwise das vidanya live streamers we will see you on the flip side